out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist and musician Jeff Drake, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. One-time member of the L.A rock punk band The Joneses has just brought out a book 2023 um, springtime titled Guilty My Life as a Member of The Joneses A Heroin Addict A Bank Robber and A Federal Inmate So um, yes, snappy title Anyway, you'll find out more about the book and also Jeff's life in music and much more Indeed, um, and I will give you the link underneath to, um, yes, click on it and buy a copy. Anyway, this is the interview with Jeff. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening in life. Jeff, tell us everything. Tell us now. Yeah, um, you know, when I was about, uh, I was born in 61, so I'm in my early 60s. And um, probably when I was about, 12 or 13, about 1973, 74. Um, at that time, Elton John was really popular in the United States. And um, I liked what, you know, I was expo- heard his music on the radio. And then um, I eventually got into the Rolling Stones. And then I was actually really into the, the glam rock stuff that was coming over from England, uh, Mott the Hoople and T-Rex and the Sweet, Susie Quattro. My brother and I would go to the library and get these books that were uh, the year in music. And I think they were put out by some English newspaper and would have like pictures of Roy Wood and, uh, you know, all the glam rockers. And we weren't able to really hear that music here, but we would look at the pictures and go, wow, these guys look great, you know. And um, and then when I was figured out how to get the music through, you know, import, imported records at the record store. And I found a radio station later that played that kind of stuff. Um, that, that's the kind of music I loved when I was a teenager. Yes, absolutely. And did your parents have any kind of musical kind of direction in your life? You know, did they have any taste or any cultural sort of moments that was kind of significant to you? Yes. Um, I actually interviewed my my mom for a paper that I wrote when I was in college. And she, <coughs> excuse me, she said that the, the big culture, cultural moment for her was the song Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley and the Comets, because she was a teenager in the 50s. And she remembered dancing on the front porch of her house with her dad, my grandpa, listening to that song over and over and over. And my dad, actually, he was also a teenager in the 50s. And he had a bunch of Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, The Coasters, um, Little Richard records when I was a kid. And so that's the kind of music we had around the house that I listened to when I was a kid was my dad's 50s records. Um, so I was very influenced by 50s American rock and roll. And then, you know, as a kid growing up, my parents, uh, especially my mom, would listen to the Beatles and Creedence Clearwater. And so there was always music around the house, but mostly my dad's 50s records is what I sort of gravitated towards. Yes, absolutely. So your parents were quite hip to the trip, really, weren't they? They didn't. They, they were very of, young. They were very they young. They were very young. Because in the book, you, you mentioned that you have a quite a bad little accident that leaves the left side of your is it your left side of your face kind of paralyzed uh, it was for a long time it's it's a little lazy now it's hard for most people to notice um i kind of talk out of the side of my mouth a little bit i'm deaf in my left ear um 
but I've pretty, uh, my equilibrium is really bad, my balance, and uh, but otherwise I've pretty much recovered from that. That was a really bad accident. God, that did sound horrendous, actually. It was really yeah. bad. And I had a sort of an older brother who was seven years older. He had a sort of a, quite a big influence on my life. You know, he was very good at sport, but also he introduced me to that world of what that was, prog rock of the 70s. But funny enough, he did have the Elton John Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album and Sergeant that Pepper. That was the one that, yeah. And that, that blew my mind, actually, because it was four sides, you know, the um, Yellow Brick Road. So, you know, as a young kid who would sneak into his room to play them after being forbidden, you know, you'd hear Funeral for a Friend and then you'd hear, you know, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. There was all the classics that, you know, became classics at the time. It was just another great album, you know, with this amazing cover. And then the last yeah. track, I think, was um, there was a track called Roy Rogers, which was had a profound effect on me. But there was a track at the last end was Harmony. There was this kind yeah. of two, two and a half minute song, Harmony. And I just I always gravitated towards lyrics and, and sort of sentiment and melancholia. Even as a 10 year old, I loved sort of depressing songs. So that Harmony yeah. is kind of a sad song. I actually got into Elton John a little bit before that. It was the song Crocodile Rock, which my band actually covered. And again, it's a 50s-sounding song, and it was the album before that, Don't Shoot Me, I'm the Piano Player, that came before Yellow Big Road. But Yellow Big Road was a massive, massive album in my life. I mean, Benny and the Jets and Funeral for a Friend, you know, that was like the soundtrack of my uh, 12, or when I was about 12 years old. Yes. Um, did you, what was the first record that you went and bought with your own money? Wow. That's a good question. Um, I had Crocodile Rock. I think my brother actually is the one that paid for that one, though. It might have been uh, a Creedence Clearwater song. But I, yeah, I was also really, even before that, when I was about eight or nine years old, I was into novelty songs, a lot that came over from England. Like there's one called Gimme That Ding by the Pipkins. I don't know if that rings a bell at all. Yes, it's. Uh... But that might have been the first record that I ever paid money for. Back in those days, it was about 35 cents for a seven inch single at you know Woolworths or something yes and, we, um, I, I seem to remember it was like 75 pence and it would take you about a month to save that money to buy that record right, when you're a little so you, kid yeah that you would then play obsessively but I do yeah. I do remember there was a lot of novelty records in the 70s because there was obviously Chuck Berry My Ding A Ling which came over right. and, there, his, and only, there was, his only number one hit <laughs> and then there was, there was there was Telly Savalas, he did one. There was like this guy called Benny Hill who had this one about the fastest milkman in the West. And and there was always these kind of weird songs that, you know, and there was these ones yeah. about grandpa or granddad. And, you know, there was always these funny, you know, funny sort of weird songs. that Because in the charts in those days, a record would go in at number 40, if it was lucky, and then it would creep up two or three places each week. So records didn't just kind of last for two weeks. They would be there yeah. for months, but they would be like this kind of like, and we would listen to the charts on a Sunday afternoon or evening on the radio. And, you know, it would be like the top 40 countdown and you'd be like so excited, you know, it's, oh my God, it's gone up two places. It's gone up, right. my God. It might You're be on top of the... It would be on top of the pops on Thursday, you know, if we're lucky, you know, and it was like, <sighs> you know, you had, you know, it was nothing was instant in life, was it, in those days? Huh. It was. 
Things definitely moved much slower back then. It was much, but that meant that we know all those records because my my parents had a Carpenter's record and, you know, there weren't that many. So, you know, I consumed this album day and night for years, you know, so I know those lyrics and I can see why, you know, after listening to the world of the world of the Carpenters that, you know, I love Joy Division and the Smiths because they were just all these depressing songs about alienation (laughs) and loneliness, you know. Do you like the only ones? They're kind of depressing. Yeah, they're 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 right in anything that's still, you know sad is is right in there. I think harmony <laughs> was also one of those songs, and um, yeah, it's yeah, very sad. Very it's sad. A very sad. I know it's all about saying goodbye, but then it was also like seasons in the sun, wasn't there? We had joy, we had my, fun. We my had... sister had that record. Yeah, there was the... all those death songs. Death songs. We love death songs. <laughs> and Harry Nilsson, I can't live if living is oh, without yeah. you. I mean, that again, you know, it wasn't just in the charts for a week. It was in there for this whole period of time, you know. So Nilsson was so great. And I don't think people really remember, <clears throat> excuse me, remember him kind of. But when I was about 10 or 11 years old, it seemed like every song on the radio was Harry Nilsson. You know, he had all these hits. And uh, I really love his album, Son of Schmilson, the one that came after Nilsson Schmilson. Yes. I just think he's got such a good sense of humor and so talented and a really uh, kind of eccentric entertainer, I think. Amazing. He wouldn't play live. No, it's strange, isn't it, really? It's really strange. <laughs> but then he, we also played live once and didn't like it. Yes, and then we had the Osmonds. Who there was always the Osmonds on telly. They were just <laughs> they were always there. I find an interesting fact. I know this is completely irrelevant, but I didn't realize that because um, Michael Jackson, Donny Osmond had this huge, in fact, in, impact on our lives. But their mothers were both born on the same day, different years, but both born on on the same day. Oh wow. So, um, I didn't know that. There you go. I only found that out late earlier today. But look, so then as, as we progressed, I mean, I just stay, stayed a fanboy. You obviously had musical kind of ambition. Where did When did the idea of playing an instrument come into your consciousness? I can tell you exactly when. Um, my mom took me to see, I by that time I lived up here in Central California. Where I live now a very small town. And... Um, there was a theater in town and the Led Zeppelin movie, The Song Remains the Same, came to town. And I was about 15 years old. So my mom took me to see it because I, I couldn't drive yet. And um, when I saw Jimmy Page playing guitar in that movie, um, I decided that's what I wanted to do was be a guitar player. Yes. Just the way he looked, the way he looked standing there holding it, the way he moved around. Uh, it just seemed so cool. I was already into music at that point. I loved the Stones. And by that time, I loved Led Zeppelin. But watching him play um, made made me want to do that. Yes, this is this is true. We all us all us young boys, and also we had Top of the Pops. That theme song was that you know, um, yes, Led Zeppelin. So we got that embedded in our brain as well. But at school, because you know, from your book, you you excel, don't you, in in the world of studies and um, qualification. Well, y- yes and no. I mean, my grades were horrendous. Uh, well, I sh- until high school. I mean, when I was in up until high school, I never got anything but an A, you know, which is the highest grade in the United States. And um, but when I started, excuse me, when I started going to high school, I'll turn this off. Um, yes. I'm sorry. When I started going to high school, I started smoking pot and stuff, and so I started spending less time on school I sort of lost interest completely because that's about the same time I started getting into music and playing guitar and my grades went down the toilet but I would take these tests that they give here that's called the SAT test and sort of uh, 
it sort of lets colleges know how smart you are so they can send you scholarships and stuff. It's sort of a way to weed out the smart kids from the not-so-smart kids, I guess. And I got this huge score. I wrote about it in the book, and I cheated on it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I always – my teachers in high school would say, oh, Jeff, you're so smart. You know, why don't you apply yourself? Why don't you get serious? And I was like, ah, you know, fuck school. I want to be a rock and roll star, you know. And <laughs> oh, you I just want to – grow my hair long and smoke pot and uh you know that's all i wanted to do in high school really yes because i was a little bit too young for punk but you would have just about kind of felt the excitement of punk as it right, started right. to appear it, didn't it you perfect it came at the perfect time i was already into the new york dolls and stuff and so i was ready for it i, I saw a special on one of the networks here very late night maybe midnight or something on a weekend and it was about punk rock this thing from england you know and um I loved it from the second I was exposed to it. They showed the Sex Pistols and the Damned, and um, yes. I couldn't get enough of it, especially the Sex Pistols. I really loved them. Yes. And later the Clash, but and the, the Buzzcocks, and then yeah, I mean, yeah, it was all just, that stuff. But it uh, just it yeah, was the, kind of the perfect three-minute pop song, really, weren't they? They were just awesome, you know. They, yeah, they were very crafty, you know. The Buzzcocks, the Sex Pistols were just about you know anarchy and loud guitars, and uh, you know, I loved all that, the rebelliousness of it. So when did you get your first instrument? Was that the bass from your photographic? No, no the first instrument I got, uh, I bought a, a Les Paul copy that I everybody thought it was a Les Paul because we were all kids. Nobody knew, you know, this is in the early 70s or mid-70s. And I think for $50 from this older kit and uh, the jack kept breaking it was all held together with masking tape and i bought a little fender amp for like 20 dollars or something and um but my first real instrument i got a job and uh started working saved up my money and i bought a um an early 60s fender stratocaster that was a really cool guitar um but those were my first instruments when i was a teenager yes. my parents would punish me by taking them away instead of like grounding me or something because they knew they couldn't keep me down they would take away the guitar yeah because had you already formed there was a band you had was it the slider that you had in the late slider. 70s the slider that was that was a high school band i was in you know played covers mostly a couple songs that i wrote that ended up being jones's songs but yeah that was a, a school band i think there's a picture of the band in the book playing. yes well there's definitely a picture of you with a it was a bass guitar you had in your in your hands. No, that was my strap that I was playing in that that picture. Was it? My my best friend is playing bass in that picture. We're still friends uh, almost fifty years later. He lives thirty miles from me. Yes, really, that's good. So by then, seventy nine, you're out of school, aren't you? Yeah, I graduated high school in nineteen seventy nine. Yes, I know. I love your book. It's got all the. It's got all your. So you're, well, actually, just all. Oh, your thank life. you, thank you. I'm glad <laughs> you enjoyed it. It is great. I have to say it's been it's been brilliant for us us music fans. But then because of in, in this country, you know, which is slightly obviously quite different, really. But 79, you know, Thatcher gets in, Margaret Thatcher, conservative government. Suddenly the la political landscape changes massively. There's also the Falkland War. We also have the miners strike. And then we have Greenham Common, which is, you know, the anti-nuclear moment. A few years later, there's various other strikes and problems we have, you know. Our country at this stage is very poor. The USA isn't so poor. So what was the political... You have Reagan 1980. What's the political landscape like for you and your life at this stage? 
Well, um, I grew up in a very conservative place, Orange County, California, very Republican, if you didn't know anything about American politics. Um, so my parents were, were Republican. I grew up Republican. Um, I, my, the first time I voted for president that I was old enough, I voted for Reagan in 1980. Um, just because uh, I didn't really follow politics that closely at that time. But we had just gone through the, the hostage crisis and the gas crisis and inflation was bad. And it just seemed like Carter was having such a hard time. You know, in retrospect, I really respect him. He's about to die any yes. day now. And uh, I really love Jimmy Carter now. But um, I wasn't really that political. So I just kind of did what my parents did. As the 80s went on, I became more and more liberal. And by 80, by 92, I was voting for Bill Clinton. Yes, it was, it was, it was gonna, yeah, things were changing drastically then. So for the yeah, 80s. The, the 70s here were very liberal and uh, pretty much anything goes socially. And then uh, when Reagan came in, they really clamped down. It's gotten very, very more, much more conservative than it was in the 70s here. Uh, growing up as a teenager, I don't think I could have picked a better decade than the 70s, just the way the, the uh, you know, the, the culture was here. And, yes. But it really changed, became much more conservative. It became, well, I think in the 70s here, there was a lot of strikes and the in, industrial landscape of the UK wasn't very good. And also, you know, the political parties were constantly going in and out of number 10. And then suddenly there was this, dun -dun, Margaret Thatcher gets in. And, and yeah. then we have the yuppie. Then we have this kind of, we have wealth on one side, total poverty on the other. But interestingly enough, and, and it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but it does help create really great music when people are angry. <laughs> <there>. Yeah. <laughs> so that's... Uh... Right out, not too long after, you guys had the Falklands War. Yes, we had the good old Falkland War, nineteen eighty. So that was Thatcher was doing really badly. No one had any faith in her, and then she got it absolutely right. She sort of yeah. went hell for leather, got that little island, and suddenly her stock went right up. And she became basically in the you know like a Martin Scorsese film. She was untouchable, really. Yeah. Or, well, you know, the, the UK's always had a pretty formidable um, military, and I think they. Uh, they couldn't have, well, I guess there's worse opponents in Argentina, but not much. I mean, they were pretty incompetent. Um, but yeah, I, I was really rooting for the UK in that one. Yes, it was we had stupid. A... It was stupid the way the, the Argentines tried to, you know, it It was just a bad move on their part. I mean, I'm not sure they knew who they were tangling with. I thought, I think they really thought that the UK would just say, okay, go ahead and take it. But mm -hmm. they should know if they knew anything about uh, the UK's history. Uh, you guys aren't that way. No. And also, I think it's almost like, you know, it's interesting when somebody plays a, uh, plays a move and the opposition, instead of, you know, they do it in a way, the opposition almost has to come back and, and yeah. fight. You like, know. like Putin invading the Ukraine. He thought he would just stroll in there. His troops had parade uniforms with them. He thought it was and uh, he really um, he really misplayed that one. Yes, I know. It's he really, really stepped in it, we say here. It's God, it's a year now, isn't it? Blimey, it just drags on. But yes, so then we had the punk period, then post-punk in the UK and things were changing. And then sort of 82, there was a kind of a different, a bit of a musical shift. And this is where your band forms, isn't it? You became your next big journey, the Joneses, which yeah. is a huge moment, isn't it? So how does this yeah. band come together at this stage? Well, um, our first, the Jones's first show was Christmas Eve of 1981. So yeah, you're right on the money as far as the time. 
But me and the bass player, Steve Olson, had been in rockabilly bands together. That's after I got out of punk rock, when the Sex Pistols broke up, I got into rockabilly. And um, I met Steve Olson, who was also into rockabilly. We were into rockabilly bands together, and I kept getting kicked out. And then he'd get into another band and, and bring me with him, and I'd get kicked out. And it happened two or three times, and we finally decided um, we should probably start our own band. Um, so I wouldn't yes. get kicked out. Because there was a, quite a scene, wasn't there? There was a band from the UK called the Rockettes, and there was the yeah, Stray Cats. I know Levi Dexter really well. He's a good Levi. friend. Levi. I did an interview with Levi and Smutty Smith and uh, various other members. And the, um, yes, fantastic. There was a, another guy. Is it called the, oh, there's a bloke who was in a band who Bruce Springsteen liked, and he covered one of their songs, which was um, High Hopes. That was that one. Um, High Hopes. High hopes. There you go. Yes, the rockabilly scene was quite massive, wasn't it, at that stage? Dear old yeah, uh, the Rockettes even came before the Stray Cats, and then you know they got big over there and came over here, and they were huge here for a minute. Yes, they just couldn't write that classic song like Cat Strut, could they? That was the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, Brian Sester's a really talented singer and guitar player, but yeah, they it seemed like they were just about to break through. I mean, they were pretty popular as far as in that in that time they were considered new wave, even though they were obviously retro rockabilly, all that. But yes, um, I loved them. I saw their first two. I think the first time they played in uh, the United States was at the Roxy in Hollywood two nights in a row. I saw them and um, they were fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So the Joneses, it, it did it, did it then feel at that stage that the stars, because often with the band, the stars kind of line up and it's like, okay, this is, this is going to be a chapter in our lives. Did that have the same feeling for you? Yeah, almost immediately, because when we first uh, got together, the reason we got together was because uh, this drummer that Steve knew, Mitch, um, worked at this uh, venue that had a couple nights open around Christmas that were really good with missing persons and the Dickies, and he wanted to get a band together to just to play those two nights. And so we got our friend uh, Ron Emery from TSOL, and we rehearsed really, really hard for a couple of weeks, and we did those two shows, and it came together so well, we decided to keep it going. Um, you know, we got a good response from the audience, and it felt really natural. And uh, at that point, it seemed like, yeah, that was... Um, that was going to be my um, immediate future anyway. Yes. And it was a pretty hard rock and roll, sex, drugs and everything, wasn't it? The band. they You really <laughs> went for this at 100 miles yeah. an hour, weren't you? Yeah, we were pretty notorious as far as that goes. And it was from a very young age. I mean, I was, uh, I think our first gig, I was 20. So, yeah. yeah I mean, by uh, our first gig was Christmas Eve of 81. And by 1983, we won the... LA Weekly Readers Poll for Most Loved Bands. So things happen pretty quickly. Yes, I know. And and sort of it does look like both exciting and slightly debauched at that stage. I mean, was yeah. it the was it the was it the case that you got the sound? Did that come together relatively smoothly at this stage? The sound? Yes, the kind of the 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 kind of sonic quality of the band. Yeah, that was the easiest part, actually. Um because I was writing all the songs and singing the songs. And so I was sort of the musical director and the band members were changing so fast that I was really the only consistent member um, the whole time. So that part wasn't hard at all because um, it was pretty much just whatever I wanted to do. So that wasn't hard. It was the hard part was keeping people in the band and managing, you know, the 
the lifestyle with the the music and at, at times it was the band was more of just like a little gang really than musicians you know like doing crimes and stuff and um <laughs> yeah it was uh it was a wild time i don't regret any of it i i had a great time and you know i paid some consequences eventually but um what a wild what a wild way to spend your youth you know Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's nothing like it. I mean, New York's got, you know, it's been well documented with the the world of CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, and then eventually the Mud Club. And, you know, obviously had suicide, the New York Dolls, Johnny Thunders, lots of kind of heavy drug use and, and sort of people getting messy. Was was LA quite similar to that? Was that a kind of a similar vibe? You had a, was it the Whiskey A Go-Go at that stage was the main venue? There was the Whiskey and the Roxy and the Club Lingerie, and there were several places. Um, when we first started, heroin wasn't such a big deal in L.A. Um, it was mostly cocaine and drinking and stuff and, and marijuana. And then about the mid-80s, the, the heroin changed to what they call black tar heroin. And then it seemed like everybody was a heroin addict in the mid, mid-80s in L.A., Yes. But New York always had that reputation. Like I would look forward to when we would go on tour and be in New York. I would look forward to it because the heroin was so much better in New York. I think I write about that in the book too. Yes. Um, yeah, I look forward to going to New York for the good heroin. They had the white heroin there and and the stuff we had in LA was from Mexico. It wasn't as good. No, you've got to, you've got to have standards. That's the main thing, isn't it? But <laughs> so your first single was Jonestown, wasn't it? This was this was your 82 moment. Yeah, we actually, yeah, that was a funny record because we recorded it about six weeks after those first shows that we had. Uh, the band had only been together a very short time when we recorded it, but it didn't actually come out for maybe a year and a half after that because we recorded it, but we, we couldn't afford to get the records out of the, the pressing plant. You know, we couldn't afford to pay them the money to pick up the records. So they sat there for a long time. And finally this friend of ours put up the money to get it out. Um, and so it came out about a year and a half after it was recorded. And by that time the band had changed so much. People still wonder if that's even really the same band uh, that recorded <laughs> the other stuff later. Yes. Were you kind of music, you know, your musical direction, how were you sort of navigating that? Because I mean, in the U in the UK, which is you know, we had that kind of bit of a new Paisley scene. We had a new romantic scene. We had a goth scene. Then there was their kind of indie pop scene with bands like the Smiths. There was a little bit of kind of hard rocker, a bit more hard rocking with people like the Colt and the Mission. Nothing kind of like really, you know, that LA rock. So where where were you kind of musically trying to take the band at this stage? Well, um, like I said, me and Steve Olson had come from rockabilly bands, and I had always loved uh, 50s music. And part of the reason why we started the band is because we didn't feel like we fit into any of the sort of genres that were happening then. There was hardcore punk, and there was uh, like Motley Crue-type heavy metal, and that's what was happening, and we didn't feel comfortable doing either one of those kind of things. So we just, um, like I said, I was writing all the songs, so the band just kind of evolved sort of organically just based on whatever I was listening to and into at the time. There was never like a plan, like, all right, we're going to be this kind of band. We're going to be that kind of band. It's like, um, you know, I might be listening to the professionals for the first, first few years. And then I got into the Rolling Stones and open tunings on my guitars and that changed the music a little bit. And then, um, you know, it's just whatever I was listening to at the time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, did you were were record labels kind of starting to sort of 
gravitate towards you at this stage, looking to sort of sign the band at, um, during the the kind of mid mid eighties. Yeah, in nineteen eighty four, we we um, well, in nineteen eighty three, we got voted the most loved band in that LA Weekly Readers poll, and that created a lot of uh, more excitement. You know, people would come to see what it was all about, and so we were doing really big shows. We were getting written up in the LA Times. And so we got this this manager guy named Danny Sugarman, who was kind of a celebrity manager. He wrote that Doors book, and yes. he was just kind of a notorious junkie about town. And and uh, he had some connections at Electra, and all the labels were kind of sniffing around. And um, we we could have gotten a deal like right away with Electra. It was kind of a slam dunk because Tom Zutat, the A and R guy, was really into us, and Danny Sugarman, our manager, had connections there. And it just seemed like such a natural thing. But Danny wanted to turn it into a bidding war and get all the labels involved in bidding for us and create this big thing. And that happened for a while. And then, But then the bottom kind of fell out of it, and we ended up not getting a deal. Um, so he, he kind of should have went with – we probably should have went with the bird in the hand as we're two in the bush kind of thing. But Danny got greedy and wanted – like I said, wanted to start a bidding war. And um, – by the time he had it all orchestrated, it kind of fell apart. You know, yes, he didn't really have the didn't I didn't have it all thought out. I did love his book, you know, is it Wonderland? Um, which I have got behind me, but I won't know. Wonderland look. Avenue, and he also wrote No One Here Gets Out Alive. Yes, he's, he, I remember his story about Iggy Pop in, and um, Jim Morrison being because he was a young kid doing the fan club, wasn't he? And then he becomes this kind yeah, of Yeah, he originally I think he would get them coffee or something. Yes. So what was Danny like? Was he was he quite a charismatic character that you kind of couldn't help but say, yes, be a be a manager, even though you've got. A, a, he wasn't yeah. really that charismatic. I didn't really like him that much. He was just kind of this fast talking Jewish guy. And all he ever talked about was the doors. And, you know, you get sick of hearing about the doors. And his <laughs> girlfriend at the time was Mackenzie Phillips, um, the girl that had sex with her father, John Phillips from the Mamas and Papas. And they were like this sort of notorious junkie couple around town. They were always, you know, turning up in the gutter someplace and getting their picture in the tabloids. And and um, he didn't really know anything about managing a band. He just had connections at Electra, and he saw that we were big and popular, and thought it would be a really easy thing to do. Um, and like I said, once the uh, once once the bidding war that he started, he it sort of fell apart. He didn't know what to do after that, and he just walked away. But yes. there's there's a um, there's a, a part in my book where I write about scoring dope for him and Iggy, uh, and our bass player got busted. And I would go up to Danny's house. He had this this really nice house um, in the Hollywood Hills, looking over at Sunset Boulevard. There was like a swimming pool that hung over this cliff, and just you know all the money he made from that book. And uh, I would drive up there, and he would give us a hundred dollars. And we told him that the heroin was four bags for a hundred twenty five dollars each. But we could get eight of them or 12 of them for 100. So we would keep eight, give him four. And um, I would go there and Iggy Pop would be there. And um, Charles M. Young, the guy that wrote for Rolling Stone, would be there. And, um, you know, Iggy was, I mean, Danny was just a junkie. You know, he was just sort of a fast talking guy that got lucky with his Doors book. And he was sort of a hanger on with the Doors. And he ended up being, you know, managing their business affairs. Um, He's passed yes. away now. I hate to talk bad about him, but um, he didn't really know what he was doing. He got in over his head, and I didn't really like him because, like I said, when things got a little tough, uh, he just walked away. 
Yes, yeah, what a coward. Did you, I mean, because I did an interview with dear old Miles Copeland last year or two years ago when he'd done his book. Did you almost get signed by um, IRS Records at one stage? Uh, at once, at one point, they were interested in us, but that was part of the whole thing that happened in 1984. I mean, Danny was really shooting for the moon. He wanted a major label, and IRS wasn't big enough. Um, you know, when we were talking to Elector, they were talking about a million dollar advance, and in those days, that was a huge amount of money. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, there there was uh, there was interest from IRS, and I think EMI. They sent this girl over to talk to me and. I had a meeting with Tom Peterson, the guy from Cheap Trick, about producing. And, uh, yeah, it was very heady for, you know, a 22, 23-year-old kid to to be around all these, you know, famous people, you know, all wanting my attention and telling me how rich and famous I was going to be. It was going to be very exciting, wasn't it? And, um, yes, God, if only you could have just had a little chat with that younger person. But then you went in the studio and recorded, like, a six-track EP, didn't you? Criminals at this stage. Yeah, well, that's my favorite Jones's record, actually. But we recorded that in um, the fall of 82, right after we got back from our first uh, tour of the country. And uh, it came out in the spring of 83, right before our second tour. So that was a little bit before. That was the last thing, I think. That was the last Jones's record before the sort of bidding war. We did a couple songs on a compilation album called Hell Comes to Your House Part Two in 83, and that was right when things were starting to really blow up as far as big crowds and the labels coming around and, um, you know, yes. people treating us like we were a big deal. Yes, because cause for me, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the bands that I absolutely loved in the, the 80s, which was kind of a major thing, was the Smiths. 83 to 87, we had the Smiths kind of appearing, but they had a very different sound. I mean, I suppose it was much more like the Birds you know, with sort of, yeah. I don't know, rather jangly delicate guitars, jangly Martin. guitars. But there was definitely a bit of a scene in the UK with that world that, you know, there was a lot of bands like the June Brides and that Petrol Emotion, you know, Yeah, Yeah, No, the Wolf Hands, you know, there was a bit of a scene. So for you in the the kind of the mid 80s, you sign, you eventually signed for, is it Dr. Dream Records? Is this your, yeah. the label that brings out Keeping Up With The Joneses? Right, right, right. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, you were going to say something I was else? going to say, is the lineup quite steady in the mid-80s at this stage, or has that kind of changed It was again? about as steady as it ever was from about uh, the early part of 84 through maybe the middle of 87. We had the same lineup set for one change on guitar, and that's about as stable as the band ever was. Um, we recorded with Dr. Dream in 86. By that time, the bidding war had fallen apart. Um, we went through the whole year of 1985. Um, still drawing big crowds, but uh, Poison was coming up. They were starting to sort of challenge us for the, the big band in L.A. That's a little bit before Guns N' Roses. And um, we felt like we really needed to put something out with somebody or we were going to get passed by because there was things happening. You know, Guns N' Roses was starting to, to get popular. And that's why we went with Dr. Dream because we couldn't waste any more time with the major labels. They weren't really interested anymore either. And uh, they, they were kind of afraid of us at that point. And um, that's why we went with Dr. Dream. They were new. We were their first release. They had a lot of money behind them. And um, they were good as far as getting the record recorded. They got us a bunch of press and a bunch of play on college radio, which was big in the United States at the time. And um, we really felt like if we didn't do something soon, with, and that was the opportunity we had, we were just going to get passed by completely. 
Yes. Um, I mean, one of the most important, I mean, everyone's important in a band, but drummers, you were, you were, were you often struggling to find regular drummers at this stage? Um, I think there were probably fewer drummers than, than maybe any, I don't know, Paul, Paul Mars was our drummer from, uh, 84, 85, 80, and into about the middle of 86. And then he left to sing for LA Guns. Um, but we've had, yeah, we've had, I think somebody just posted a thing on Facebook. Of, he was reading my book and he did a little synopsis. He made a list of all the people he could think of that were in the Joneses. There was over 20 people. So there, it was just a constant, like, revolving door. Yes. And keeping a kind of the creative grip of the band as well, because I know in the book, and I kind of do agree with the, the album cover isn't great, is it? The Keeping Up with the Joneses? Yes, you say this. No, I hate it. I hate it. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at the other Joneses records, Criminals and Tits and Champagne and Anita Fix, I mean, they're all black and white and they have that kind of classic look about them. And then there's that one. And it just looks so generic and, I don't know, bright and happy. And I don't know. I yes. always hated that picture. It, it kind of doesn't have any narrative. It's a bit like a snap, a family snapshot of yeah. the band, well, isn't it? Well, nobody had any ideas. They, uh, the label told us to come to the, to the studio one day to meet this photographer who I actually had. I used to work with him at a record store years before, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, nobody had any ideas. We're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Nobody had any ideas. So we drove to Hollywood and got up on top of that building, and that was it. That was all the thought that went into it was, Hey, let's go on top of this building. <laughs> That's why it looks so stupid because it was stupid. Yes, it's not good. But then, <laughs> you know, you have this kind of the classic kind of LA rock scene that is exploding and, and intimidating us indie kids from the UK. How come the band, the Joneses, aren't kind of there at the forefront, sort of leading this kind of musical chapter? Because we were. Uh... Well, we kind of started the whole thing, to tell you the truth. I mean, all those guys ended up in uh, Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat and L.A. Guns and all those bands used to come to Jones's shows. And then they started dressing like us. And the L.A. Weekly even called them Jones's clones. Like when those bands started coming out, they all started coming out at the same time. And, and the L.A. Weekly had a name for them. They called them Jones's clones. But we were uh, we were just imploding from the the failed uh you know the failed bidding war and then 85 was a really frustrating year because um we were drawing these big crowds but nothing else could happen because the labels were scared to death of us and no managers would touch us because we had such a bad reputation and then um when we had the troubles with do the dr dream record coming out that was just the end of it uh Scott and Johnny and the band, they were going to kick me out because I wasn't willing to go along with the whole heavy metal thing, the bandwagon they wanted to jump onto. I, I wasn't down with that. And they were going to kick me out. And I said, well, if you kick me out, who's going to write your songs? Who's going to sing them? Who's going to come see you play that your band, the Joneses, without me? And um, so the whole thing just kind of disintegrated and fell apart. Yes, but then there was there was a little story, which is there's a lovely picture of, of the four of you on a bed. Yes, in a hotel. But there's a story of you being in Las Vegas, isn't it, Dan? Staying at Lady Luck with with a huge amount of dope and heroin on you as well. I mean, you seem to spend a lot of time sort of dodging cops and scoring <laughs> drugs, don't you? This is right, right. And uh, you know, people talk about yeah, the Joneses didn't put out that many records, but you know, I was in prison for a while, and yeah, like you said, we spent a lot of time dodging cops and you know, doing drugs and 
you know, the music was a just kind of an afterthought a lot of the time. Um, like I said, there were times when the band seemed more like a gang than a musical group. Yes, and you, but you also, was everyone always threatening to leave the band? Was it kind of one of those situations that, oh, so-and-so's leaving the band, oh, no, they come back next week? I mean, did you retire from the band at this stage as well? Right, I actually retired. I was 25, and I just said I was going to retire from music, that I was done. I I had such a bad taste in my mouth from the whole thing. But uh, it seemed like to me, from my perspective, in the mid-'80s when all the personnel changes were happening, it seemed like people would join the band, and the band kept getting more and more popular as time went on. And then they would leave thinking they were the reason that it was getting popular, but they wanted to do their own thing and go on. And it seemed like it kept happening over and over and over. People would join the band. The band kept getting bigger and they would, uh, you know, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then they would do nothing. <laughs> I, I guess I guess it's hard to have good judgment when you're slightly, you know, strung out and high, isn't it really? And, and so young and, you know, I'm sure every, everything was going to everyone's head you know we all thought we were the you know god's gift to everything so but then yeah. was, was it seymour stein's wife linda did she sort of then sort of try and persuade the band to have one more go at the uh, at sort of another record or being on the label right um steve olson had been friends with linda for a while and um me and Steve went back to New York and I had, uh, I remember I had some of the keeping up with the Joneses copies with me. I was supposed to, I did some um, like uh, radio interviews and uh, cable TV interviews. And I was supposed to use the records for promotion, which I did some of them, but we ended up selling the records. Uh, so we had some cash while we were in New York. And um, anyway, we went and stayed with, with Linda and um, she really liked Steve and she really liked me and, she was talking about managing the band, but we didn't really have a band. I mean, Steve was the original bass player and he sort of came back in the picture, but we didn't really have a band. So he, she set up some meetings with RCA and uh, took us out a couple of times and everyone was really interested. You know, she ginned up a lot of interest, but we needed to get back to California and record some music because um, there was no band and there was no music. It was just a bunch of hype at that point. So we came back to California and recorded the Tits and Champ, what became the Tits and Champagne EP. And uh, that was supposed to be the demo for RCA. And they passed because they got confused. There was another band called the Joneses. And um, that turned into another big fiasco kind of thing. <laughs> your, your brain must have been slightly buzzing all the time. Because actually, the one person that appears in the book, which is which kind of was like Howard Jones, who was this kind of one, not a one hit wonder, but Howard Jones did the a couple of singles that just became oh, part yeah. of that new wave moment. So you also right. met met Howard in a club yeah. at this stage, which was quite sweet. Did he have the big hair at that stage? Or had he changed it? No, he didn't have the big hair. He was actually uh, a friend of a mutual friend of ours. Uh, we had a good friend um, named Susie. Lawrence that lived in uh, the Tribeca part of New York and we we're going to go out one night me and Steve and uh, to this place called the tunnel and um she's so like oh we're good let's go have dinner with my friend Howard first and so we went and had dinner and it was Howard Jones the the English new wave guy and um he seemed like a really cool guy and then we ended up going to the tunnel with them uh this place actually the big thing that sticks out in my mind that night is I got to meet Chris Betting who was my big idol um Chris but yeah, that, that was the, yes, that was my God! I did an interview with Chris a few years ago, and he he plays guitar on the Howard on the Harry Nilsson's "I Can't Live If Living Is Without You." I mean, his his CV is just extraordinary, isn't it? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny about Chris Benning. I met it another time after that, and I'm like his biggest fan. I really embarrassed myself the second time because I actually said that. I actually said, I'm your biggest fan. But um, the first time I met him at the tunnel in New York, he was so out of it. I'm not even sure he realized he was meeting anyone. You know, he was kind of out of it. And um, then I met him years later at this bowling alley in L.A. He was doing um, a three piece. And I just always thought he was so amazing. I um, on my Facebook, the, the icon or avatar, whatever you call it, is actually a picture of Chris Spedding from the mid 70s. Um, I just think he was the coolest thing. You know, when I was a teenager growing up and I still um, I think he's a great guitar player. He's, he's definitely my favorite guitar player. Yes, he did a. It wasn't a novelty, didn't he? But he did that one motorbiking on. Yeah, that was his big uh, hit. That played was on top big... of the pops. Did that one? Yeah, he was on Stiff Records, I think, wasn't he? At that stage, I mean, one thing that I did notice about, you know, doing all these interviews with people is that there's a kind of a, a chapter, you know, a five-year chapter that happens, which is, um, you know, a band gets together, they have that eighteen-month kind of honeymoon period if they're lucky. They get a single, the album comes out, they do a bit of touring, the second album, possibly a third. The band are pretty exhausted at this stage. And the other thing that happens is that there's a kind of a, a new wave of 16, 18-year-olds that come along and they want their band and their new sound. Or in the case in the 80s in the UK, there's ecstasy appears and people suddenly take ecstasy and it's like, we want to dance. And, you know, suddenly that dance scene starts and then there's kind of grunge that happens in the early 90s as well. So any band before then just looks and goes, actually, we're just not, we're not hip to the trip anymore. What was so it dated, like for yeah. you towards the late 80s? Because you've had Tits and Champagne, which has come out, and you've had lots of more personnel. I think you had, even had, did you have a suicide as well thrown in just to um, add to the the mix of... of um... That was my that was my other band, Amanda Jones. Um, actually, two suicides, almost like Badfinger or something. But, um, well, you know, after I retired in 86 or 87, I guess, um, you know, Guns N' Roses was getting really popular, which made me really sick because I had seen them come up and, the, you know, I had my interactions with them and uh, it just made me sick that they were the biggest band in the world, you know? And so to sort of rebel, I cut my hair short again and, um, you know, I was just working and doing whatever and uh, trying to ignore, you know, the hair metal that was taking over the world. And then, I went to prison right when the grunge thing started. And um, so I missed out on a lot of that. You know, by the time I got out in the mid nineties, that's when I did that um, Amanda Jones record with, with Mandy Brick. Right. God, you've, you've, yes, you did pack, pack a lot in. That must've been really sickening seeing Guns N' Roses just like everything they did yeah. was just magic, wasn't it? So what, how did the, how did prison, how did you have five years in prison? What was the, was it drugs? It was three years. Um, bank robbery I, I got busted uh for bank robbery i write about that in the book um yes uh, it was really it was really boring uh you know prison uh you know it's uh how can i say it's a whole different world you know it's you gotta watch your back all the time you gotta be really careful what you say who you say it to and every little mannerism or anything can get blown out of portion and turn into a, a deadly fight so you really just got to be careful, you know, um, tiptoe around. If if you're like me, if you're like a big tough guy, I guess, you know, you, you got to stake out your territory and, and fight with the other alpha males. But um, the worst part of it was just boring and the isolation, you know, being cut off from the rest of the world and, you know, the people you, you like to hang out with. And, you know, it, it just wasn't a happy time. 
No, my God, because I did an interview with, is it Patrick O'Neill, who's brought a book out recently? He was a kind of roadie, road manager for the Dead Kennedys and various other people. And he he also did bank robbery and then ended up in prison for a bit and had to sort of try and get off his drug addiction as well. Have you read his book? No. No, no my God. sorry. So, um, no, that's fine. There's only so many books you can read. So when... Yeah. When you came out of prison, were you at that stage then? Had you managed to get yourself off all all junk at that point? Um, well, I didn't use it all when I was in prison. And then I also didn't use it all when I was on probation because they were drug tested. The feds were drug testing me for three years. So for about six years, I was off of it. And then I had um, some dental work done. And I had to start taking Vicodins and the, it went on for too long and I got physically dependent and then I started using again. And that's what broke up the band Amanda Jones is I had to go to rehab. And when I came out, um, the band had broken up. Yes. How did the, the Amanda Jones band start? I mean, what was the kind of lineup and the and the general dynamic of that particular combo? That was actually the the my favorite band that I was ever in. I think that's also the best band I was ever in. Um, I had dated Mandy Bricks back in 1984 for a short time. And um, I always thought she was really smart and talented and beautiful. And um, after I got out of prison, I went one night to a club and I saw her singing in front of a cover band. And uh, I, she just really knocked me out. And um, so I approached her and I said, hey, what do you think about me and you starting a band? And I sort of pitched her the idea that we were going to be sort of a cross between Blondie and the American punk group, the Avengers, you know, sort of, uh, you know, have a good looking, um, you know, girl up there singing and catchy rock and roll songs. And um, she said yes. And so we we got Keith, the bass player who I'd known for a long time, and he knew Sean, the drummer. And um, like I said, that was my favorite band I've ever been in. Um, Everybody got along really well, and um, I was feeling really creative. I think that's the best guitar I've ever played, the best songs I've ever written. Mandy was a great singer. She was a great collaborator as far as writing songs. Um, we had a really good time, and the band really caught on. I think if I hadn't gotten strung out again and gone to rehab, I think that band could have really uh, gotten big. Yes, because she'd been married to Duff, hadn't she? From Right, right. There you go. My God. Does, does everybody know everybody else in L.A.? Was that, was they... <laughs> no, it's just me. I just know everybody. Now, actually, you know, it's crazy because I'm I'm not really that social of a person. I'm actually kind of a hermit. But, um, yeah, I just I end up knowing all these people that, uh, you know, like I said, Mandy was married to Duff and Danny Sugarman. And, but no, not everybody in L.A. knows it's a it's a pretty big town, L.A. No, I, 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 it's nice to think that you all live in a lovely, happy community and bump into each other in the <laughs> shops. We all love each other. You all love each other. I know. There's no, there's no bitterness. Well, kisses, kisses, and hugs. I know every morning. But you was you went on Bump Records, didn't you? Yeah, Amanda Jones. Uh, the very first gig that we played, Greg Shaw from Bump approached Manny and said, "I wanted, I want to sign you guys. I want to do a record." Um, after our very first show, so. Yeah, things happened really fast with that band. Like I said, I, I really loved being in that band. I think it could have gone gone places. Yes. Did it last? It lasted from the mid mid nineties to the end of the nineties at that stage? No, not no. It was only about a year and a half, maybe very short time. Um we rehearsed for a little while, did uh 
for several months, we were the house band at the Coconut Teaser. We recorded the one EP with Bomp, and that's it. Yes. It was a very, very short-lived band. So you had to go back into rehab quickly to... Um... Did you have to go back into rehab at that stage? Yeah, yeah. I had gotten strung out again on heroin, and um, it got to the point where I couldn't function like I needed to. And so I went into the musicians union actually sent me to a rehab in Palm Springs and I wasn't a member of the union, but um, they knew who I was. So I was able to take advantage of the benefits of the union. And um, so I went out to the desert for a, for a time to their rehab. And when, like I said, when I came back, um, I just started using again. And so the band just never really got back together. Right. Did you ever speak to Mandy again? Oh yeah, we're still really close friends. Um, she was actually at, uh, I did a reading and signing of my book in Hollywood about a month ago and she was there. It was good to see her. God, that must've been quite nice actually to see. And Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen her in a long time, but we've stayed, we've stayed close uh, messaging through Facebook or, or text messages. Um, we just don't see each other much, but uh, yeah, we've stayed, we've stayed friends. Yes. And Palm Springs is so nice. That's where Elvis Presley's, um, uh, honeymoon hideaway, isn't it, really? Palm Springs. Yeah, Bob Hope was a big, I think he might have been the unofficial mayor there for a while. That's where all the, the movie stars in the 60s would run out to the desert. Uh, if they didn't want to go all the way to Las Vegas, they would go to Palm Springs. It's a beautiful place. But then you you sort of, in a plucky, plucky, I have to say your stamina is fantastic. You you know, 2000 comes along and you this is your next band is the Vice Principles, isn't it? Right. So how does this kind of, at this stage, had you ever thought, I've just had enough with music, I've done two decades of it, it's going to kill me? Or were you always thinking, no, I can't say no to the to the power chord? <laughs> well, no, because actually I tried to retire in 1987, I guess. And um, like I, I like you said, I guess I get, kept getting pulled back in and I really didn't know what else to do. I mean, I, I you know, so I'm not like a, the man of a thousand trades, you know, it's like, I didn't really, I never went to college at that point. So I didn't know what else to do really. And, um, so the vice principals happened, Amanda Jones had broken up and, um, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I was going to do a solo record and, um, I started, um, talking to people about being on the record, sort of accumulating musicians to do my solo record. And, uh, at that point, me and my brother Scott were estranged and had been for a couple of years. And I thought, you know, I would bury the hatchet and I would record a song that he wrote and ask, ask and ask him to sing backup vocals on the record. And so he agreed to do it. And then he said, well, why don't we just have a band together? You know, people would love it if, you know, the two Drake brothers who have been estranged, you know, get together and, and record and do a band. And and so uh, I said, OK, so we approached Long Gone John at Simply for the Record Industry and he agreed to uh, foot the bill for the, the recording of the Vice Principals album. And then we recorded and um, played shows for about a year. And then that band broke up, too. Yes. But you did have a loss. You have a Las Vegas story in the book about that <laughs> that kind of weekend, don't you, as well? You like those stories, huh? Yeah, um, that was uh, that was towards the end, I think, of the Vice Principals. Uh, we got asked to play this festival in Las Vegas. It was like a weekend thing where there was... I don't know how many bands, but a lot of bands from all over the world playing. And so we got there like uh, Friday evening. We were supposed to play Friday at midnight. 
And this girl that I met from Spain gave me some cocaine because I was tired. And man, it just lit me up. And so we played our uh, we played our set. And when I got off, I, uh, I I was broke. I didn't have any money. So one of one of my old friends that was used to be a Jones's roadie gave me like twenty dollars so I could sit next to him and play blackjack. And I kept winning and winning and winning and drinking and drinking and drinking. And um, by the time we were done playing blackjack, I must have had six or eight hundred dollars. I had a lot of money. And um, I took everybody to breakfast and I kept drinking and drinking. And while I was sitting there playing with all these chips in front of me, this girl came up, uh, Castle Wasserman. And uh, we started chatting. And we decided we were going to get married that weekend and uh, actually the next morning. And so she went back to her room to get some sleep. And we were supposed to meet someplace the next morning and get married. And um, so I took all my friends to breakfast because I won all this money. And I'm still drinking and drinking and drinking. And um, a couple hours later, this other girl I knew found me like face up in the parking lot, passed out, and people were throwing pennies in my mouth. And uh, she woke me up and said, Jeff, Jeff, um, do you know where you are? And I said, I'm in Long Beach. And she said, no, you're in Las Vegas. I'm like, I'm not in Las Vegas. What am I doing in Las Vegas? Anyway, I was so drunk, I didn't know where I was. And so she put me in a cab. And um, I just had my room key and I handed the room key to the, the cabbie and my wallet. And um, he took me to my room and he gave me back my wallet with $300. And I don't know how much he kept. He could have kept the whole thing. So I, I congratulate him for that. But um, I woke up the next morning too late to get married. And um, that was my Las Vegas story. It was fun. Oh, the little but, white um, chapel. Oh, so I don't, close. I don't drink like that anymore. I think I must have had... Uh, a hundred gin and tonics and didn't sleep a wink. So no. I, was, I was drunk. I was really drunk. This is not good, isn't it? So then, <laughs> you know, we have the, the the millennium and the millennium bug period. And then that change uh, that goes, comes and goes. So then what happens for you in the 2000s and onwards? Did you, you know, the vice principals has finished. It seems like at that stage, that's kind of, you know, then we have, was it 2001, 9-11, which is kind of a massive moment, isn't it? I mean, right, right. how do you then navigate the rest of that decade as you probably in your getting to your thir late 30s, 40s? I turned 40 in, in 2001. So, mm. yeah, when the vice principals broke up in the spring of 2001, that's kind of where I end the book. You know, that's kind of the explanation pointer I put on whatever, just because it would have been a thousand pages, you know, because I'm 60 years old if I kept going. Anyway, so I cut the book off at 2001 because that's really when I stopped uh, pursuing music as a career. And, you know, that's, I was kind of done with it. So I, I had this really good job. I was a regional sales manager at the third largest nail polish manufacturer in the world, this outfit called Orly. Mm. And I was work, working there and making pretty good money. And then 9-11 happened and I got laid off. And I thought, well, I should probably go back to school and, um, you know, because I was I knew I was always really smart and go back to school and try to get some kind of career, maybe be a history teacher, because I was always interested in reading history. And um, so I moved back up here to Merced, which is, like I said, this little small farming town in Central California. And I went back to community college and I did that for a little while and I graduated from there and then I transferred down to L.A., I went to Cal State LA and got my bachelor's degree in history. But in the meantime, this label from Chicago called Fullbridge Kicks contacted me 
and wanted to uh, put out all the old Joneses stuff. And at this point, I I didn't think anybody really cared about the Joneses anymore. I, I had been going to school. I was kind of out of the loop. I didn't really know. So I said, okay. And um, he started putting out this stuff. And and then I, I transferred down to Cal State LA and we did some Joneses shows. And by this time, the internet had happened. Yeah. And um, one of my songs, Pillbox, had, had had this life that I, I had never intended for it and became really popular. And um, so we did some shows. And then in 2009, I met the woman that I eventually married, Sylvia. And then um, I moved back up here to try to get my master's degree. But the the, the UC that they opened here in Merced um, didn't have a, a master's program that was complementary with history. It was all biotech and stuff like that. Anyway, I ended up being stuck here. And, um, and then uh, I was married and my wife left me about two years ago. And that uh, brings us up to the present. Blimey, jeezy, crazy, and the cats. And the cats, yeah. And the book, in the book. Oh, because Sil- so you mentioned Sylvia in the book, don't you? I just dedicated it to her. I don't really talk about her because I cut the book off in 2001. I didn't meet her until 2009. Yes, at the vapor, vapor room in Hollywood. I, I did sort of see that bit. Yeah. Oh, God. So, yes, you mentioned she had a little bit of a... Yeah, cats. More the zoo than than the pets, really, isn't it? When you get up to double figures, I think that's kind of um yeah, blimey. Okay. So when you so so you know, this decade, a bit tricky, isn't it? But we get to the pandemic. Is when did you decide, right, that's it, I'm gonna write my memoir about my musical life? Well, um, there's a friend of mine, actually the guy that put out the Joneses Anita Fix record that had been bugging me for about 30 years to write a book. He's like, Jeff, you got to write a book. You know, you've had such a crazy life and people would love to know about it. And you got to tell your own story and you got to do it. And I always told him, no, no, no. You know, I don't really have the discipline to sit down and write a book. You know, I'm a songwriter that takes 20 minutes. A book is going to take longer than that, you know? And um, so I just, I just never even entertained the idea. And then my wife left me in uh, uh, right around Christmas of 2020, I think. And uh, it was right after that I decided I was going to start writing the book. And um, so I wrote the book and then I contacted uh, Hozak in um, July of 2021. And then it just came out November 1st of last year, 2022. Amazing. And also, I mean, so was it for you? good experience processing everything sort of for the first time you know you probably spoke about it and probably thought about a lot of this but actually writing it and going through all these kind of moments and sort of getting back these stories and these conversations did that was that a good was that generally something that you felt you needed to get off and and deal with no <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. I mean, it was a little therapeutic, I guess. It because because I when I started writing the book, I was very down on myself. I was really blue because my wife had left me. My self esteem had taken a beating. You know, I was kind of in shock because I I didn't see it coming, and I thought we would stay together forever. You know, and um, it it kind of made me feel better about myself. Realized that I've you know, a, even though I've never made it to the top of the mountain, I've accomplished some things in my life and you know, I'm not just worthless. And, uh, you know, people would be interested in hearing this stuff. And, um, 
So it kind of pulled me up out of that frame of mind for a while while I was writing it. Mm. Um, there was kind of a letdown though when I was done. But my my writing process was so different from anybody I've ever talked to because I've talked to some other authors now. And um, you know, there was never a first draft, there was no revisions. I pretty much started at the beginning and just wrote all the way through and then broke it up into chapters later. And um, it was just all kind of off the top of my head. I would my process would be every day I would uh, about an hour before I would start writing. Well, I started I started writing about an hour a week and I realized that wasn't going to be enough. I couldn't get into it. I wasn't, I didn't have any momentum. It, I just wasn't getting into it. And so I thought I've, I've got to write every day. I've got to do it every day if I'm really serious about this. And so what I would do is I would sit for about an hour and think about, okay, where, where in my story am I at? And I would think about it and then um, sit down at the keyboard and just pound it out until my back started hurting. You know, I would write for like four or five hours and my back would start hurting and stop. And I did that every day. And um, then it, it, it started coming really fast, you know. Um, and every day I would follow the same sort of plan. I would sit there and think, okay, where did I leave off yesterday? Okay, what was going on? And I would just tell my story. And um, I just kept going until it was time to quit. And um, Yes, and then you thought that's it. Well, it's good you had that a date to sort of finish it, you know, because um, that's quite clean, isn't it? And you you can sort of see the finishing line when you were doing it. But um, when you yeah, got I wasn't that... really sure how to end it. I, I even talked to some other people like, how do you think I should end this? You know, because I didn't want to really talk about my marriage and stuff because that was so fresh in my mind. I wasn't sure I could talk about it um, without having some perspective. And so I just thought that 2001 was a good cutoff because I quit the vice principals and I sort Sort of that's when I sort of went into seclusion and sort of you know went out of public life sort of um, yes yeah yes I mean if you could have whispered something to like your 16 year old self starting out is there anything in particular that you might have just said oh I've got some words of wisdom for you even if you ignore them I'll just tell you what I think they are I'm sorry ask me again Yes, I said if you could have whispered or spoke to your 16-year-old self starting out, you know, your 16-year-old self, with all the years of experience and wisdom you've got, is there anything that you would have told that person, even if they ignored it? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, don't do heroin. Don't, uh, don't depend on becoming a rock star because, you know, it may not work out have a have a plan b at least um yes those are the those are the two main things i guess yeah yeah and have you picked up a guitar recently no and uh people keep i probably probably not in five years i keep buying amps and guitars and effects and stuff uh but i don't play it i bought a um I bought a lap steel guitar about right after my wife left to give me something to do. And I played that for a few months. Uh, but then I stopped when I started writing the book, I, I sort of put everything down and I just haven't picked it up since I'm supposed to be doing, I'm supposed to be performing at the end of this month in Hollywood. Um, they want me to do one song. Um, so I need to pick it up so I can just remember how to do it. But yes. no, I really haven't been playing music at all. No, blimey. So what what sort of happens next in your life? What what's your next kind of journey or your or your next chapter? That's a good question. You know, I'm trying to figure that out myself. I don't 
I know my marriage is probably never going to get back together. Um, I don't know if I want to be with another woman or not. I don't know if I want to be a couple or a single or um, people are telling me I should write another book. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Um, you know, like they say, the future's unwritten. And for me right now, it really is. I don't really have a plan. I'm promoting the book now. I mean, that's sort of where my head is at is uh, trying to get as much out of this book as I can. And there was some uh, some Jones's reissues that came out last year. I'm trying to promote those a little bit. And um, yeah, I just don't know. That's a good question. I uh, I wish I knew. I wish I had a plan. Um, I've never been this old before, so it's kind of freaks me. Out. I mean, it's it's sort of weird. You know, I was married for well, I was with my wife for about 13 years, and so when I went into the relationship, I was about 47. I came out, and I'm 60. And it seems like time sort of stood still while I was married because um, all of a sudden I'm this old man. I don't know, how's it, you know, what's an old man do? You know, I mean, should I, uh, I don't know. I just don't have a plan. Yes, it's tricky. And what label has brought out your kind of the reissues for the Jones, the Jones? Oh, it's, it's called Projectile Platters and it's a subsidiary of uh, Puke and Vomit Records, which is uh, a Southern California punk rock label. Yes. And have you sort of found with the, those reissues and now with the book, have you found a sort of a whole new audience that are sort of fascinated with the band? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny as there always is. I mean, I've I've made a couple other comebacks in the past and I, I used to joke around. It seems like the longer I stay away, the more popular I get. So at this point, if I never play again, you know, I'll be a huge star. But it seems like, yeah, every 10 years or so, thanks to the Internet, um, a new generation of people sort of discover the Joneses and um, people that are drawn to that kind of stuff like it. And, and now, nowadays I hear from people all over the world, like yourself, for example, you know, I send out books and records to people in uh, Northern Ireland and Australia and Spain and Switzerland and Sweden and all over the place. Yes. And it was interesting in the book because at the end you sort of mention a few bits and pieces. And one of the bands that you mentioned is is sort of Zig Zig Sputnik, which is kind of one of our classic 80s bands who were yeah. kind of an interesting mix. Because I did an interview with Neil X, who was their guitarist, who loved Eddie Cochran and 50s yeah. rock and roll. I guess that's what drew you to the band, wasn't it? Well, that and... Um... Just they were so obnoxious at that point i was still sort of rooting for the obnoxious bands i i knew tony james had been in generation x and um i liked the i i just it doesn't seem like the kind of band i would like but i loved them and i uh again i kind of compare them to the new york dolls and the way that their image was so strong and um but still they they at you know, they, they claim to be the 21st century rock and roll band and all that stuff. I mean, I, I bought into that whole thing. I really, really liked that band. Yes, we loved it as well. But look, Jeff, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview. This has been amazing. And as I said in the message, I'll, I'll when I put it out, I'll send you a link and then you can put it on your, Great. you know, Facebook page and uh, hopefully get even more sales. Have you found it's um, generally going very well? Yeah, um, I've been kind of unlucky with uh, some of the events that I've been setting up. Um, two of the events, the, the guy that did it set them up died right before they happened. And then then last weekend, I got caught in that huge storm down in L.A. with historical snowfall that they've never had before. So I've kind of hit a like sort of an unlucky streak. But that's sort of my my uh, my middle name is bad luck, you know, but um, 
uh, yeah, I've, I've hit, hit a little bad luck with, uh, with my events as far as the weather and people dying and stuff like that. But, um, everybody seems to like the book a lot, um, which is really, you know, that's really gratifying for me. I just really want people to enjoy it and, uh, and, and not put it down and go, God, you know, I, that's, that's, you know, however many days I'll never get back again, but yes. I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just really hope people enjoy it. I know I'm not going to get rich from it, but, um, I just hope people enjoy it. Oh God, it's fantastic. And it's, be, you know, it's, I've really loved it. And I've really also enjoyed the fact that you've included lots of posters, pictures and gig tickets as well, which is kind of, it's a nice little compliment, you know, which kind well, of, that, a... that was the idea of the publisher, Hozak. I got to give them credit for that. They just kept asking for more and more pictures. Um, I was really scraping the bottom of the barrel with some of the stuff I was sending them, you know, like song lyrics and stuff like that. Um, Cause I ran out of pictures and they wanted flyers and like you said uh lyrics and, and gig things and anything i could send them so i'm glad yes. you i'm glad you enjoyed that part too yeah no it's it's you've you've really it's beautifully designed i've seen one or two that you know to be honest they haven't spent too much on designing and it's a bit but this is this is definitely a class classy publisher isn't it let's face it you know my my uh my relationship with them has been great and i got luck, really lucky because they were the first people I approached to to publish my book. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I thought I was going to have to go around with my hat in my hand, begging people to put out my book for God knows how long. But they were the first people I approached. And I, I introduced myself and they said, oh, my God, we're huge Joneses fans. We'd love to put out your book. And so I got really lucky. They were the first ones I approached. And I think they did a great job. I'm really happy with the way. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Look, well, thank you ever so much, Jeff. I'm, you know, give yeah. my love to all the cats. And, um, <laughs> you know, um, did you say you got 14 now? Yeah, 14. 14. Do you, just as a curious cat owner myself, do you make them all come in at night? Or do you, do they have kind of freedom of the house as well as coming and going? Well, when we first moved to this house, me and my wife, we let them go in and out whenever they wanted. But then the neighbors started trapping and killing them. So then we started pulling them in at night. And then the neighbors started putting their traps out in the daytime. And so now I have to keep the cats in the house all the time. Blimey. <clears throat> but the neighbors are dead. The, the, the <clears throat> neighbors are dead. Yeah, the husband and wife, they both died. Oh, hurrah. So can the cats go out now? No, because they're... Their uh, son-in-law moved into the house, and uh, he still has the traps. God, what a bastard. They're horrible people. They're really, um, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? I guess fundamentalist Christian, they're Pentecost, apostolic Pentecostal, and uh, they, but they act like devils. I mean, they, they claim to be Christians, but they act like devils. Yeah. So they, were they like rat traps that would kind of, or would they just trap them and then they'd go and kill them? They're like a metal cage. And they open it up and they put a can of, of wet cat food in there, which is horrible because cats can smell that for blocks away. So they weren't just killing our cats. They were killing all the neighborhood cats. And people were coming and saying, what's going on with our cats? Because my wife made a sign that said cat killers pointing to their house. And uh, all these people were coming in the door because they were killing. They thought they were our cats they were killing, but they were killing a lot of people's cats. They killed five of ours. But anyway, mm. the, the, the cat would go into the, the box to eat the food. And it would fall down behind them and they couldn't get out. And the way we know that is because one night one of our cats didn't come back and we could hear her crying. And we went into their carport and she was in the trap. So we took the trap home, let her out of it. And then I took the trap back and 
broke their window with it. Um, I should have kept the trap, but um, anyway, yeah, they they have traps that they trap yes. cats and they kill them. Christ, I never Horrible. heard. We call my wife and I wouldn't even call them people. They're monsters. I I can't even imagine thinking like that. No, they're sick. They're just totally sick. Yeah. Anyway, look. Sorry, that's a bit of a diner, isn't it? But anyway, look. All the best, and I really hope everything goes well for the book and and your well, thank you, events. And I, like I said, I'll keep in touch. But thanks again, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, David. Thanks for being interested in having me on your show. Yes, definitely. Take care. You too. See you later. See bye, you. bye. And that, and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You probably gathered. Anyway, a massive thank you to Jeff Drake for giving me the time for that. Uh, the book titled "Guilty: My Life as a Member of the Joneses, a Heroin Addict." A bank robber and a federal inmate. Yes, it's available from all good bookshops and also online. And um, yes, that's it really. If you want to contact me for some random but nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.